There's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about autism that stand in the way. I think sometimes even clinicians feel like they, they'd be able to know it if they saw it, whatever that, whatever that means. This is Atypical Parenting, the podcast for parents and caregivers for those on the autistic spectrum. My name is Dawn Tree, and I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. But more importantly, I'm the mother of a 32-year-old adult autistic son. Each week, along with special guests, I hope to bring you relevant information and lots of encouragement as we walk this journey together. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're super excited. We have Dr. Teresa Regan here. So Dr. Regan is a neuropsychologist, and she's also an author, and she does a bunch of other things. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So as you said, I work in central Illinois, and as a neuropsychologist, I specialize in understanding how the brain and its connections and its health and development really impacts things like thinking skills, but also emotions, behavior, and personality. And I have focused on adolescents, adults, and aging adults in my clinical practice here at a hospital. And then I became a mom and I have a teen on the autism spectrum. So I really had the opportunity to delve into this developmental neurologic diagnosis. Then I became a certified autism specialist and I founded and direct the autism diagnostic clinic here at our hospital for adolescents, adults, aging adults. So yeah, a lot of autism topics in my life right now. Wow. And it sounds like you're super busy too. Yeah. And so in all of that free time you have, you also have a podcast? Yes. I have been doing a podcast for two years called Autism in the Adult. And I've written a couple books on autism. I also have a website that is adultandgeriatricautism.com. Wow, very nice. So we have a true expert here, people. We're going to pick your brain a little bit, Teresa. And, you know, I was watching, I was sort of reviewing your podcast, and I noticed that you have a lot of episodes on diagnosis and misdiagnosis. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how do people get a diagnosis? How does that even like, what would the very first step be for somebody who thinks, gosh, I think, you know, my person is autistic? Well, I think one of the frameworks we need to think about is that autism is a neurologic diagnosis and it's a diagnosis of behavioral patterns. So someone could have autistic neurology across the whole spectrum of intellect. So someone might have some intellectual difficulty, whereas another person might be really gifted and doing well. The reason it's important to consider actually teasing out whether the diagnosis is neurologic like autism or whether there are more traditional mental health diagnoses that would be more appropriate is that we're always thinking about what behavior means. You know, what does it mean that this person said this or didn't say this? What does it mean that they throw a tantrum at this point or that they're non-compliant with this request? And we can kind of create this whole narrative in our mind about what the behavior means. And if we really actually chase down a diagnosis, is this behavioral pattern, this 
whatever the struggle is for this individual, is it neurologically based or is it maybe based in more traditional mental health diagnoses? It helps us understand the why. And I think that gives us a lot of freedom about reconstructing that narrative and thinking about it differently. You know, as a parent of someone on the spectrum, there's a lot of judgment toward parents about their kids' behavior and whether they're nice or polite or well-regulated. And, you know, the why becomes very important because if, you know, you know that you're a good parent because your kid isn't struggling, that's a big problem for people who have struggles. So if we figure out, hey, this just isn't quote noncompliance or bad parenting. This is someone who's really struggling with a legitimate issue and we could come alongside them and partner with them to have a better outcome. I think that offers a lot of freedom in the family. Now the yeah. journey toward diagnosis that can be difficult depending on what the age group is. I think there are more resources for little kiddos, but there aren't enough. And people that are going to do that evaluation also vary in their experience level and their expertise, which is hard to sort through. And then as the individual gets older into teens or young adulthood, middle age, adulthood, you know, becomes more difficult to find an expert who's able to do that. Right. And as you said, the resources are also very slim. So Right. And so at this point, we're really talking about how do we change a culture that, number one, misunderstands autism, number two, isn't, isn't built with resources based on this correct understanding. And I think as a parent, especially, we want to change everything at once. It can get very overwhelming or disheartening. I think one thing I've tried to do is just say, well, I can do this one thing in front of me. So I'm just going to do, <laughs> I'm going to do what I can do and not look at this huge mountain all at once. Like, oh, I can't, I can't change that, but I could change one thing. You know, what's this one thing in front of me? So I think we're moving in a direction where there's going to be increased understanding and support, but sometimes all we can do is say, well, what is this one thing I can can do to move forward. And let's do that. Let's take a step. Yeah. And so sometimes that step is something complicated, big, but sometimes that step is just simply accepting, right? Yeah. There's lots of little things we can do along the way. Sometimes it's this journey of deciding whether we want to seek a diagnosis. Sometimes it's a journey of how do we find a professional that we feel comfortable with. Sometimes it's, you know, how can I change my narrative or my understanding of my child where I felt all this time they were manipulative and controlling or dramatic or obsessive. And now, boy, I'm invited to take a big shift and think of neurology. I can't change the world, but I can work on my own, my own shift or my own. Yes, absolutely. That's such a good point. So how do you, so I imagine you see a lot of people who've been around the circus of mental health treatments and, and providers and diagnoses. And what's the most common misdiagnosis, do you think, say in like 
teenage young adult people who've never been diagnosed with autism yet? So one of the concerns that I have is that autism often has not been considered at all. So it hasn't been ruled out, but it just hasn't been on the table at all for discussion. And that's really something I'd like to see change first. Like what's the first step in the change in our clinical process? Well, I think that would be let's put autism on the table and let's actually consider it in in the differential. So the differential would be here are the person's strengths and struggles and you know what are three or five or however many diagnoses that might overlap there. And then with the differential, you go after what specific one makes the most sense. Really, I've seen all diagnoses kind of put on someone's list incorrectly when it's actually autism. So I think there are some large categories. I think Personality disorder is one, so sometimes line, narcissistic, avoidant, there's lots of personality, schizoid, schizotypal, lots of them could fit in there incorrectly. Border or bipolar is up there, schizoaffective is up there, schizophrenic, OCD, trauma, there's just so many, and sometimes what really is a cue for me is that if I see someone come in with, you know, five, seven, 12 diagnoses, and they're all describing a little piece of that autistic neurology, then I would say, well, (laughs) essentially, these seven things are listed, and they're describing together, they're describing autism, but nobody's gone after that. So then when you see that it's, when you see that it's the autistic neurology, you can get rid of those extra. I just think that there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about autism that stand in the way. I think sometimes even clinicians feel like they they'd be able to know it if they saw it, whatever that whatever that means. And or they think that it must be someone who's nonverbal or intellectually disabled, which really the autistic criteria don't include cognition at all. It's really not uh, a diagnosis that has to do with cognition or intellect. So I don't think it's up there on our list. I think people also mistakenly think that there's nothing we could do about it anyway, which is not true. We may not be able to shift around all of that developmental neurology, but there's lots of things that create a lot more freedom and better outcomes for the autistic, just knowing what the correct diagnosis is, making appropriate goals versus inappropriate ones, using strategies that are really geared toward that neurology that could be more helpful. So, you know, some people will say, oh, I don't think this client is autistic because they're married or whatever. (laughs) Like there's just, there's just uh, misunderstandings. I have a clinician friend who says, oh, they make really good eye contact. I'm like, come on, got to be kidding. Yeah, people don't know the criteria. One of the things that I find useful is that if I've evaluated someone and I, I explain why the diagnosis fits, if they say, well, I don't think they're autistic, 
I'll say, well, what criteria don't you think they meet? And I've never actually had anyone know the specific criteria. They just feel like they don't get that feel from them. I just don't get that feel from. So, you know, I think right now the drive toward diagnosis is coming from the community a lot that people want to know if they're on the spectrum, families would like to know. And it's an in- interesting situation in the sense that we're trying to help clinicians and doctors and, and mental health personnel kind of catch up with, yeah, why is that important and how can we help you feel really equipped at least to understand the flags and to know when someone should be referred for a more specific diagnosis? Yeah, I think you're right. I think in the mental health community in particular, which is the community that I belong to, you know, we get you you sit in your comfort zone, right? Like you diagnose certain things all day, every day. And so you're looking for mood symptoms, you're looking for sleep problems, you're looking for, you know, all the things that are going to give you your common mental health diagnoses. And a lot of times you really don't do proper assessment for autism and then you don't refer appropriately. Right. Yeah. Yep. As I said, I think that would be a great step forward for clinicians to say, I'm not going to specialize in this, but I can learn what are some red flags, when should I send someone, and to know, let's say if they're an ADHD specialist or an OCD specialist or whatever, you know, to learn how that diagnosis could be thinly attributed to the autistic and to think outside of their own box, right? So if we're looking for OCD or we're looking for ADHD, we can stay in that little box and see what we think we're going to find. But autism is really a diagnosis of the big picture. And if there are ritualistic behaviors, but there are also social and relationship signs and there are sensory signs and you know, you have to step back from what you're used to looking for. And you, you have to think a little bit bigger when you're looking for autism. Absolutely. So what is sort of the gold standard for diagnosing autism? Well, I think there's not one answer to that. So the diagnostic manual and all of the Uh, tools that we have, all of the manuals will say that you really need multiple sources of information to make the best diagnosis. So one of the things you don't want to do is go to someone for a diagnosis that just uses a questionnaire or a diagnostic interview, no matter whether it's considered a good one or not. It's always going to have some limitations. So you want to get assessment information from multiple sources. So that might be an interview assessment with the client. It might be that the clinician speaks to collaterals. So friends or family, there might be medical records, there might be school records, there might be some role play and demonstration and questionnaires. And so when I see someone, I'm essentially considering myself a detective for that day. And I'm trying to get as much data as I can. And then I look for a pattern in that data. So we can never, ever say, oh, they got this score on this questionnaire or this interview. Therefore, autism is the diagnosis. And part of the reason is it's it's not 
a score is a summary, but it doesn't look at pattern. And the diagnostic criteria should always be the gold standard. So any tool, any interview is supposed to help us look for characteristics that meet the criteria. But if someone gets a particular score on a questionnaire or an interview, that is one source of information, but you still don't know if all the specific criteria are met. And also, one interview or questionnaire can't look at all the ways that that area can be met. So for example, if someone gives a sensory questionnaire to look at that seventh criteria, a lot of the sensory questionnaires really focus on reactivity to sensory input, like bright lights bother me and flickering lights and loud noises. But the criteria actually says that it could be this hypersensitivity to input, but it can also be underreactivity to input or an unusual fixation or fascination with input. And we also need to look at eight senses. So the five we usually think about, plus vestibular, proprioceptive, and interoception. So there's more that goes into the criteria than you're going to get out of any one questionnaire. So really, all sources of information combine together to really see if the pattern of the criteria are met. So the criteria are the gold standard. Do you think that neurologists today are doing those sort of comprehensive exams? I really don't know. And so I serve individuals who are 14 years and older. So in my population, I don't see neurologists doing that. If if they do, they're probably pediatric neurologists or developmental physicians. And I think the approach varies across places. I think some places are and some places aren't. And, you know, I had someone the other day that said, you know, someone in their area will give you the questionnaires and then say yes or no. Other people, I think, you know, there are clinics and clinicians who are really doing really high quality assessment and it's just difficult to know. But what you'd want to look for is that someone's not just taking the results of one questionnaire or, or um, interview that they get a score from and then concluding on that basis alone. So you talked earlier about, you know, once you find the correct diagnosis, once you are able to get a definitive uh, diagnosis of autism, there are a lot of things that we can do to help. Do you have any, do you want to talk a little bit about what your top suggestions are in that area? Usually when people come for assistance, it's often within three categories, not all the time, but if you're going to kind of make generalizations, one can be social skills or relationships. So it's certainly not the case that a person on the spectrum has to have more friendships or more relationships, but if they have a personal goal that they'd like to develop an intimate partnership or they'd like to improve their relationship with their mom or whatever their personal goal is, then you may need to kind of target the social skills and relationships area. Another area for intervention is often what we call adaptive behavior. And that means really getting through daily life. So a lot of people on the spectrum will have intellect, 
that is really in a nice range, but getting through life is quite a bit harder. So sometimes we provide some support for that. And then the third category would be regulation. And everyone on the spectrum will have difficulty regulating, which means that their ability to stay centered with alertness, like am I sleepy versus too restless with attention? So am I distracted versus hyper-focused? And also with emotions and behavior. So some people will have a hard time staying centered and will have arguments or outbursts or meltdowns. Another person who has trouble feeling centered might really need to withdraw to regroup. Like, oh, I need to go to my room. I need to stop this conversation or I I can't make it through school. I need to come home. And another category would be that freeze category, like physically present, but I'm not processing anything that we're talking about right now. And what I would also put in the freeze category is somatization of stress, where the individual on the spectrum is at a higher risk for processing stress through their physical system, things like headaches or stomach aches, but also like just dissociating. Like, I don't remember what happened in school today. I'm really psychologically checked out. I don't know what happened. So helping the person identify kind of what their goals are in certain categories and then making appropriate goals. So that's going to differ so much from person to person that it's difficult to generalize here on the episode. But for example, if you know that someone has a neurologic difference, it should help us understand what our actual goal might be. So I think we get into really unrealistic and difficult waters when maybe the goal for a parent or a teacher or a spouse for this person on the spectrum is that they become neurotypical. And that ends up being a really kind of recipe for disaster because number one, you know, that's not a realistic goal. And it also creates this really difficult dynamic where the person feels shame or or helpless and and the person trying to get someone else to change feels frustrated and so part of what the clinician can do is help the patient and family identify what is a realistic goal in this area of social skills or in this area of regulation or whatever the specific goal is. Give us is. an example of say I don't know 15 year old and a goal for a neurotypical kid And then that same goal as it would apply to an autistic person. Okay, so I'm going to give you two examples. One is off what you just said, but it's another neurologic example because I want to highlight that this is just not an autism-specific thing. It's a neurologic thing. And then we'll talk about the 15-year-old. So let's consider that you know, I'm a neuropsychologist. So somebody comes into me and they're having memory problems and they want an assessment for memory. And my second patient for that day has the same concern. They, they are concerned about memory as well. The first patient that I assess, we realize that their 
memory anatomy, their hippocampal system, their brain's neurologic ability to remember things is really strong. It's working really well. But the reason they're having memory problems is that they do have this PTSD that was recently kind of reawakened, re-traumatized with a new difficult life circumstance, and they're dissociating. So they're not remembering, but it's not neurologic. So that needs support and intervention, and we would target interventions that would help someone with trauma. So we're going to look at the counseling and medication support and things like that. So if my second patient has memory concerns, we're not going to automatically have the same uh, intervention strategy for them. So we have to figure out why. Why is the memory difficult? So we go in and we do this assessment and lo and behold, their hippocampus is not working It really looks classic for an Alzheimer's dementia. And so sending them to trauma therapy or any kind of therapy is not going to be helpful to their memory. That's a phenomenal way to look at this whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really helps me put it in perspective that we're not just talking about an autism specific thing. We're talking about neurology versus something you can talk through. So what doesn't work for the autistic is to keep telling them that they're not meeting your expectation. You know, you're still not meeting my expectation. Here we go again. How many times can I tell you? So this kind of, I think as parents, what we're trained to do is reason with our kids, tell them what our expectation is, tell them when they're not meeting it, set up some reward and consequence. The problem again is Let's say we did that for the Alzheimer's patient and we said, okay, Mrs. Smith, memory is really very important. It's important for your safety. It's important to get through daily life. And, you know, Mrs. Smith says, yes, I completely agree. Memory is very important. And then you say, so this week I'm going to leave you on your own with your medications and you need to remember them. You need to do better so that you'll be healthy. So we both agree, right? Yes, right. And if you've remembered your medications, I'll bring you this treat. And if not, I'm going to have to tell your son and he's going to come and be really upset with you. You know, well, lo and behold, the memory doesn't doesn't work consistently. She can't remember what? Yeah. And so we say, Mrs. Smith, you agreed, you know, now we're going to have to have this consequence. So understanding the reason for the characteristic does help us know what's realistic. uh, And how do we get there? Do we just tell someone to do better? So let's take the 15-year-old and there's, let's say this 15-year-old is coming home from school And one of the rules of the house is that she has to immediately, before anything else, she has to get her homework done before she can do any recreational things. And she can't be on a tablet of any kind because, you know, she's been using that instead of doing her homework. So the problem that's been happening is that she comes home and she's been, quote, stealing the mom's tablet from the bedroom and going into the closet 
and looking at pictures of animals, which is like her crazy high interest. She loves animals. And what does she do in the closet? She's looking through photographs of different species and what they have at the zoo that's new and the live webcam of the eagles and their nest and all of this kind of stuff. And mother feels that she's controlling and manipulative and really comes down hard on her and yells, takes the tablet, takes her to a psychologist. They set up a consequence schedule. So consequences and clear expectations are going to work a lot better if the person's capable of doing what you're asking them to do. And in this case, what she's showing us is that she's having difficulty regulating. So after a whole day of school, she is done. So she's going to the closet in the dark to do her favorite thing, which means that she's showing this regulation reaction of flight. So I'm going to go hide. I'm going to get in the closet and uh, the lights are low and nobody's talking to me. And I've just got these pictures and I'm going to be filled up enough that I can do homework. And in a sense, when you think about that scenario (laughs) and you turn it around in the parent's mind, it's actually kind of admirable that the kid has figured out that I'm hooked. I can't do anything else. I need to do this to get myself back on track again. Like it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the individual may or may not be able to verbalize that, but they are doing what their nervous system needs. And so if this were willful manipulation and I'm going to oppose my parent just because you can't tell me what to do, well, that would be something you could address with expectations and consequences. Because it's this individual on the spectrum who has this strong interest and is soothed by animals and also after a full day of school just needs to shut completely down, you know, punishing her for not regulating and taking away what she's using to regulate is really not great. So... But let's say it doesn't mean that the parents have to allow everything just because, you know, there's a neurologic context. But let's say the parent wanted to really do some intervention, like they maybe they're concerned that the person will go off onto other websites or that it'll be too long. They don't want them on the tablet so long. So then you would work with them to say, hey, how about? You have this daily routine that after school, you guys sit on the couch together and you set the timer for 30 minutes and mom has a snack there and you can show her animal pictures and tell her about the species and you guys can have time together and eat a snack together. And then you can decide what else you need in order to start on your homework. So you're doing a couple of things. You're you're rewriting the narrative in your own mind of what this behavior means. You are realizing that some assistance with regulation is really going to be important for her. And you're setting up some type of structure. Like I don't want her in the closet on the tablet necessarily, but let's set up this structure. And another thing you're doing is saying, I want to partner with you 
to help you get regulated, even though I know homework is important, I want you to feel like, yeah, I can get through the day. I'm feeling better. So let's partner instead of me telling you how you're letting me down again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. You are just an amazing like wealth of knowledge. So if people are interested in the conversation that we had today, they want to learn more about you and what you offer, What, where would you send them? My website has a lot of my resources on there. So adultandgeriatricautism.com. I have a page for professionals. I have information for individuals with a diagnosis or seeking one. I have information for parents and friends. I've got some videos, some podcasts. So I try to do kind of a variety of things depending on how people might want to learn. There's also just a contact form on there if you want to write and ask me a question. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate you taking some time out to hang out with us today and to give us a little information. It's been great. Sure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at atypical underscore parenting. If you like the show, help me reach more listeners like you by leaving a rating or review on your podcast platform. Wishing you all a wonderful week. Until next time.